This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance, plus save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. He gets criticized by the media all day, every day, by everyone else. And then guess what? Two weeks later, he's proven to be right. The president is expected to be tweeting on Thursday in response to Comey not to stay quiet. No, he didn't. In fact, he took out a, a, a Twitter gun and shot himself four times. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast. I'm Virginia Heffernan. Trumpcast is the funeral at which I wish I were seeing you under more fortunate circumstances. So today we have a double header on Trumpcast. Two stories. The first one about reality, and the second one about England. We've parsed so much covfefe and alternative facts lately on this show, we need a dose of reality. And so reality has floated in like a good fairy, like a weird fairy, in the form of a 25-year-old called Reality Winner, who was revealed today as the leaker of a document that seemed to reveal, what else? Evidence of cyber attacks on the U.S. by Russia during the 2016 election. So on this show, first up, we are facing reality with Stephen Vladek, who teaches at the University of Texas School of Law. But we have something after that. Three days after the terrorist attack on London Bridge, we're talking about the UK. The UK and Trump. Macron in France and Merkel in Germany have decisively expressed their disdain for our president. Justin Trudeau has also intimated that he's not legitimate. But England is still hedging its bets with the leader of its closest ally. And my guest today is the ideal journalist to discuss that hedging of bets. He's Jonathan Friedland, a weekly columnist and writer for The Guardian. But first, let's get to that reality. On the line with me is Stephen Vladek, who teaches at the University of Texas School of Law. His research focuses on federal jurisdiction, constitutional law, and national security law, and he's a Supreme Court analyst for CNN. Steve, thank you so much for being here, especially at short notice. Happy to do it. So we are here to talk about not fantasy, but reality. Reality, Lee Winner, that is the 25-year-old government contractor in Augusta, Georgia, who has just been arrested and I believe is in jail for transmitting defense information under the Espionage Act. Just to recap, yesterday, The Intercept, which also does a podcast with Panoply, published a story about a top-secret NSA document that was provided to them anonymously. The article said the document described two cyber attacks by Russia's military intelligence unit. That's one last August against a company that sells voter registration software, 
and another against 122 local election officials a few days before the 2016 presidential election that, just to remind you, that's the one that gave us President Donald Trump. Steve, is the American reality we used to live in, the one where the Constitution and U.S. norms were binding, is it reasserting itself? What I'm asking you is, is reality winning today or is it losing? (laughs) Um, Can the answer possibly be yes? Um, (laughs) I think think the short answer is, you know, this is actually, in one sense, the most normal national security story we've had from the Trump administration in, uh, dare I say, the history of the Trump administration. Um, You know, it's, it's actually not that unusual for the government to use the Espionage Act, this very broad statute that is turning 100, actually, this month, to go after leakers. President Obama actually got into a fair amount of hot water especially from civil liberties groups, the ACLU, for example, for actually being one of the most aggressive pursuers of national security leakers under the Espionage Act. And part of the problem is that the Espionage Act is very capacious. I mean, it's a statute Congress wrote really with an eye toward German spies during World War One, but it's written in, you know, sort of general terms that basically encompass anyone who shares national defense information with folks who are not authorized to receive it and who should know that that information could be used to the benefit of a foreign power or the harm in the United States. So it's actually not that unusual for the government to go after someone like Reality Winner for a leak like this one. I want to get to the document for a second. What does the document itself mean? What are its ramifications? I mean, I think the ramifications are, you know, to confirm what I think a lot of folks have been suggesting for a long time, which is that the Russian government and agents of the Russian government were trying very hard and were in some circumstances successful in using various kinds of cyber tools and cyber infiltration techniques to at least manipulate American public opinion in the run-up to the election. You know, the document that Reality Winner apparently and allegedly leaked suggests they may have even tried to get into specific election websites, election computer sites for particular state and local election authorities. You know, I I think we should be very careful about jumping to conclusions on that last point. Um, That they tried doesn't mean that they succeeded or that even if they succeeded, they were able to manipulate outcomes. Mm -hmm. But I think if nothing else, it underscores why it's so important to have a full-throated, apolitical, bipartisan investigation so that we can settle one way or the other the full extent of the Russian government's role in hacking and in trying to influence, you know, last November's election. This is the first I've seen, and maybe I haven't been paying attention, but the first intimation that Russian interference might not just have been with the media and popular opinion, but with possibly the the software. This isn't a Diebold voter machine kind of hack. This is the voter registration software. So possibly there was some tampering with the uh, with the registers. I mean, possibly. I mean, there's a suggestion possibly. at least that they, that they had their hands on that too. And, and possibly is the right word. I mean, I think, you know, folks who are either especially inclined to believe the conspiracy theories or especially skeptical of them should take the story seriously, but not literally, uh, if, mm-hmm. I can, if I can appropriate the terminology of the Trump era, right? Which is to say, you know, what this is, is sort of something worth investigating and something worth pursuing to figure out exactly what was attempted and whether anything actually resulted. And then the question is whether the government or Congress or some combination thereof 
as part of a Russian investigation, formally declassifies de- declassifies the document, um, which also, by the way, might help make it easier to prosecute reality winner. Got it. So now let's go to the leaker herself. You know, you've attended closely to the leakers, Snowden and Bradley, now Chelsea Manning, who leaked to WikiLeaks famously. So, you know, how does a 25-year-old, be she Chelsea Manning or reality winner, do this? How does this happen? How does she decide? Does she realize that she's crossing lines and violating the Espionage Act? And how does she get it in her head that this is her her patriotic duty? Yeah, you know, I have to say, I hope she realized it. I mean, it would be really sad and tragic if, you know, she exposed herself to this kind of very serious criminal liability without fully understanding the implications of doing so. Um, you know, I think it would be very hard even for a casual Googler to miss just how serious the criminal implications are for national security leaks. The, I think that there's a larger public debate that's worth having about whether, you know, a leak like this one, whether you could ever have a circumstance where the value to public discourse of the leaked information should provide a defense to the leak. Courts thus far have not recognized such a sort of public interest defense to leak prosecutions. But, you know, I have to say, I mean, I, I, it's very hard to put yourself inside the mind of someone in that position who makes this choice because, you know, they're either consciously subjecting themselves to incredibly serious criminal repercussions, in which case, you know, I'm, I'm in rather in awe of the choice they're making, or they're not, in which case I'm rather sorry for the fact that they don't understand what they're doing. I mean, you are a, you are a First Amendment person. You, you can't have thought it was simply stupid of her. I mean, this is still a valuable document, whether or not you want to say reality winner is a, an American hero, as you say, some people are saying online. Is she? I mean, but this is. I mean, but this is the same debate we've had, we've been having about Edward Snowden, right? Yeah. For the better part of of four years. You know, I'm. I, I fall into that weird middle camp of people who think that Edward Snowden is both a hero and a criminal, right? That mm. that it is possible to have individuals who break the law but do so for reasons that are more important. Much much as we might think that you know, if you're on the way to the hospital, you know, we care less about a law that says you can't speed or you can't run a red light than we care about getting to the hospital as fast as possible. Sometimes there are things that are more important than criminal statutes. But it's easy for me to say from the comfort of my office, you know, in law school, I think it's a lot harder to think about what it means for the folks on the ground who are aware of these national security secrets and who make this choice to disclose them either with knowledge of or without knowledge of the consequences. Yeah, you know, one of the the slippage in actually in Trump's Twitter account about leakers, you know, he's obviously expressed a great fury about leaks from the White House is where do you cross into violations of the Espionage Act and, you know, heavily criminal offenses? And where are you just a White House staffer saying Donald Trump looks depressed today? I mean, he doesn't he doesn't like either of those leakers. Those are the leaks that he wants to plug. But, you know, we have a there's a difference of scale between um, reality winner and the unnamed 
White House staffers who often leak about the administration. No, that's right. I mean, there's an old saying that the ship of state is the only ship that leaks from the top. Um, right? That you know, <laughs> leaking leaking is going to be part of Washington for as long as there is a Washington and a press. Um, I, the line that the law currently draws is where the information that's being leaked is what the you know outdated, very sort of vague espionage espionage act defines as quote information relating to the national defense unquote. Um, which usually but not always means information that's classified. And so, you know, for a presidential staffer to say, oh, morale is really bad, oh, President Trump just yelled at Reince Priebus, that's not going to fall within the statute. Mm -hmm. Um, But when we're talking about material like this, I think, you know, I don't think there's any question that the document that Reality Winner allegedly leaked does fall within the scope of the Espionage Act, um, right? The bigger question is whether it should, mm-hmm. um, right? And whether there ought to be the kind of First Amendment defense we were just discussing. But, you know, for better or for worse, and, and I've been saying for a long time, I think for worse, the Espionage Act covers this kind of leak when it's this kind of information. Well, thank you very much for being here. And especially, I like this answer that, you know, both a criminal and a hero and reality is, like most days, both winning and losing. <laughs> I think that's the, that, that's the right way to put it. Thanks for having me. Since this is a double header, I'm going to stretch my sports metaphors and talk about a seventh inning. What is it? Stretch? <laughs> yes, Virginia. <laughs> seventh seventh inning, stretch. inning stretch. Where we're going to have some entertainment from the president reading his tweets. Pathetic excuse by London Mayor Sadiq Khan, who had to think fast on his, quote, no reason to be alarmed statement. Mainstream media is working hard to sell it. Sorry, folks, but if I would have relied on the fake news of CNN, NBC, ABC, CBS, Washington Post, or The New York Times... I would have had zero chance of winning the White House. People, the lawyers and the courts can call it whatever they want. But I'm calling it what we need and what it is. A travel ban. The Justice Department should have stayed with the original travel ban, not the watered-down, politically correct version they submitted to Supreme Court. The fake mainstream media is working so hard trying to get me not to use social media. They hate that I can get the honest and unfiltered message out. So for further perspective on our weird Trumpian times, we have the reasoned voice of Jonathan Friedland. He's a weekly columnist and writer for The Guardian and a regular contributor. He also presents BBC Radio 4's contemporary history series, The Long View. Jonathan, welcome. It's a pleasure. It's good to be on the show. So what I thought we might do today is a sort of, not quite therapy session, but a little bit of active listening between the two nations. You know, the (laughs) UK and the US, it would seem as though given the internet, given that I, you know, get to see you on Twitter, given the friendship between the perverse, passive-aggressive friendship between our two nations, 
And given our almost shared language, that we'd be able to understand one another and finish each other's sentences. But no, the sort of garbled communication between our our administration and yours, it's just mind boggles. Like, we can't read each other's cultures. It's true. You can see this also in the American praise for Louise Mensch, your conspiracy monger who's come to the U.S. and worked up her her shtick here that, you know, failed to play in, in England. And we keep mis- misunderstanding each other. So hopefully you can bridge that gap today. Yeah, that is disheartening, that uh, context, uh, you know, because actually the sort of liberal types on, and especially on, you know, Twitter, have bonded, I think, partly through the rise of the social media, but also through Trump, to be honest, so that yeah. over the last year, you have felt there to be tremendous common ground between you know, people like you and people like me, um, and that we've come together over this. But you're right, the bigger picture is that somebody like Louise Mensch, I mean, which produces rounds of um, mainly comedic response in this country, particularly when she's branded as being of the left, Mm. which she is often uh, because she's going after Trump. But she was a conservative member of parliament here and was really very hardline on Brexit. So it's very odd for people like me to see her, A, hailed as some kind of left-wing champion, but but hailed anyway as being on the left. It's all become slightly unnerving. Yeah, I think that the, the part of the reason that we turned to rational British writers after um, after the election was that you all had been through Brexit. And so it felt like our older brothers who'd um, already been hazed in the fraternity. Dumb enough to do this. To make this <laughs> That's right. I mean, it's it's true that actually it was it was Brexit that made me think Trump could be for real. And But ever since then, I have felt as if um, those who are on the wrong side of both arguments, in other words, who were anti-Brexit and anti-Trump, have got some kind of common cause. And I think you've seen it just now with this uh, business with Trump and his tweet assault on the mayor of London in the wake of the London Bridge terror attacks, where you have seen people on both sides just come together against him. Yeah, you're talking about a mere three days ago, when the the three men I think who were very recently identified drove a van into the into pedestrians on London Bridge and then stabbed more people in the um, the Borough Market area. You know, very soon after, Theresa May condemned the attacks as the work of radical Islamist terrorists. That's a favorite phrase of our president who uses it as a reproof not to terrorists, but to his political foes who he thinks are too precious and mincing to use his tough words. And then he decided to cast uh, Sadiq Khan, the mayor of London, in the same role, that he he was somehow too pussy to to do anything about terrorists. That's right. I mean, it it came out of a statement that the mayor of London, Sadiq Khan, and his name is obviously very significant, I think, in this story and why Trump has gone after him. He issued a statement that was completely boilerplate for this for this situation, and particularly in, in London, which is he warned Londoners that in response to this terror attack, there would now be deployed on the streets of London a much more uh, intense and armed police presence. Now, you know, I'm sure that in Britain, police are usually not armed. It's very unusual for there to be armed police at all, and certainly for there to be a big presence. So he, Sadiq Khan, said, do not be alarmed by the presence of armed law enforcement on the streets. And Donald Trump took that line out of context in that tweet that said, uh, you know, here's this horrible terror attack and the mayor of London says, don't be alarmed. You know, this complacency in the face, this sort of accusing him of a kind of insouciance 
in the face of terror. It was just a classic case. I mean, I know often people talk about being quoted out of context, but this was really a classic case of ripping a few words from the wrong place to give them a completely opposite meaning. And what's been really striking about the reaction is just this collective sigh of but out. You know, nobody wants you involved in this. Yeah. The city is is grieving. We pride ourselves on being pretty resilient, but there is a more you know mourning going on here. And you expect from a foreign leader either platitudes about solidarity and sympathy or you know, say nothing. But what you do not expect is to taunt the extremely popular uh, mayor of this city while he is dealing with this crisis. Um, it was amazing. I, I really do also, though, like the idea of Trump chastising anyone for his insouciance. If only Trump said that. <laughs> insouciance from Oh, Trump. that's not part of his vocabulary, nor, nor would nonchalance <laughs> be part. No, I think that's true. He's not going to tweet or speak or say those words. But as usual, when he himself was upbraided, uh, Trump, for using um, the no reason to be alarmed out of context, but and moreover, for not jumping to a show of sympathy and solidarity with the mayor, he doubled down on Twitter and described described his reaction or his reaction to Trump's reaction as a pathetic excuse to recontextualize no reason to be alarmed. I mean, this is really reality TV bullshit. And in the middle of a terrorist attack, it's just astounding. I mean, I don't think George Bush, who you've written about, was ever going to do this, was ever going to get political and personal in the middle of 9-11. So George W. Bush was hugely unpopular in Britain uh, generally when he was uh, president and particularly obviously with liberals. And there were big demonstrations and effigies of him. And, you know, he will be forever be associated with the Iraq war, which was a calamity opposed by huge numbers of Britons at the time and many, many more since. So, you know, he stands there as the figure of the archetypal disliked American president. He is currently Abraham Lincoln by comparison <laughs> yeah. with Donald Trump. I mean, people now will look back on him and think, okay, there was a basic level of dignity there in how he conducted himself. He did constantly talk about Britain as an ally in a way actually that discomforted a lot of British liberals because it was with Tony Blair shoulder to shoulder that led them into Iraq. And um, crucially, he did something always, which was he would say, we are talking about the terrorists, not about Islam, which we consider a peaceful religion, etc. Now, that script continues to be the script here, where Theresa May, yes, will talk about radical Islamist terror, but will still make a point of saying that the jihadists, the murderers, are guilty of a perversion of Islam. She still, even she, a figure on the right, mm. will do what George W. Bush did, which is to separate uh, jihadist murderers from this very, you know, global world religion of of Islam. Trump doesn't do any of those things. And the sense in which he is just, you know, it is a, a habitual British mistake to think of American presidents as a bit stupid. And, you know, British elites mocked Ronald Reagan and, and learned, of, learned their mistake later, I think. They did the same with George W. It's different with Trump. Yes, they do think he is almost cretinous in terms of just his vocabulary and, and the way he speaks. But there is a deeper point, which is his impulses seem so cruel and so ungenerous that when he does uh, speak spontaneously and as himself, it is almost always to be nasty and hurtful. And to do that against a, you know, a leader of a city hours after when the dead have not even yet been named, when they, mm. when the injured are still in critical condition 
in hospitals across this city. It it just beggars belief. So he would be opposed. He is still due to come here on a state visit. And, you know, that is bigger than just a regular visit. It means it will be an invitation of the Queen. He will get the full red carpet treatment. That is due to happen in the fall here in the autumn. And yet there is still uh, uh, the notion, uh, the reaction rather, that will get uh, will be of a completely different scale, I think, even than when Bush came here. There is real hmm. loathing. Uh, there's no other word for it, I think, uh, now uh, towards him. And what's interesting, though, is it's still towards him. I don't think it is, you know, you introduced our conversation by talking about our two countries. Mm. I don't think there's hostility to America. I think there's a sense that America remains who it always was, but is led by somebody who is just loathsome. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm I'm glad to hear that. I, I don't know if you noticed, but, but Justin Trudeau um, in Canada alluded to the pullout from the Paris Accords as the act of the U.S. federal government. You know, he he took the time to distinguish the government from the nation at large, and um, that was very appreciated. Um, and and, and no, that and I think that will that's been noticeable here that the issue is talked about as president and as Trump. I mean the the difficulty for the British government here is that the relationship is hugely important. Uh, between the US and the UK in all kinds of ways, particularly intelligence. And yet, the issue that is the grievance here is about the words of the president. And you saw this very interesting situation where today the Foreign Secretary, Boris Johnson, was asked about his views on uh, Trump's tweets about Sadiq Khan. And he, you could see he was very conflicted. And that was because ordinarily he would just separate and criticise the actions of the president, but say the relationship with the United States remains strong. I'm pretty sure that his calculation was he couldn't possibly say anything too critical of Trump because Trump may well go after him next. And, you know, they know what kind of man they're dealing with. You know, it's been a theme of Trump cast. How can he be managed in some way? And, you know, we have some guests saying he can be placated, he can be soothed in that way, controlled, and, you know, others saying he needs to be confronted head on. And, uh, you know, it's been very interesting to see uh, Sadiq Khan, you know, a mayor of all people, and say the mayor of Pittsburgh, who also, uh, you know, refused to go along with Trump's withdrawal from the Paris Accords, to see those two, you know, stand up for their cities, at least, <laughs> over and against uh this global menace that is our president. I, think, I mean, I think that's right. And I think they can. And it's interesting, you know, the mayor of New York, Bill de Blasio, expressed mm-hmm. solidarity straight away with Sadiq Khan. They can do that. I think, you know, much as people like me have been goading and criticizing Theresa May for not doing it, she's in a very difficult position. You know, it would not be impossible to imagine that if she went after Donald Trump, and she has said today that his tweets against Sadiq Khan were, quotes, wrong, unquote. But if she goes after him, he could hit back with things that really count. And, you know, a factor during, for example, the aftermath of the very tragic bombing at the Manchester Arena was when in the mm-hmm. days afterwards, you know, US intelligence was leaking crucial information before the British authorities were ready to reveal it. Now, nobody knows if that was directed by him or the Trump administration, whatever. But it just showed you that there are consequences in this relationship that she particularly has to guard. So it will it will always anger critics like me, but she has to tread very carefully. She's walking on eggshells 
with her relationship with this volatile mercurial individual for whom it seems the only two modes he understands are flattery and insult. And you've seen that the Gulf leaders just laid on, slathered on the la- the flattery mm. to him. And that seems to have worked in the case of, you know, the Saudis r- red carpet for him. And anybody who talks back to him, they, you know, or, or gives him just, just even pushes back as Macron and Merkel did. Well, they then know about it. He punishes them afterwards. So this is a new dy- dynamic in international relations and people who are at head of government level. They have to manage it in a way that critics like me and you, you know, we don't have to. What's the worst that can happen, you think, here? And what is, what's the hope? Well, the worst that could happen would be if Trump just decides to pull cooperation between the two countries. I mean, in terms of particularly the intelligence relationship, you know, I've spoken to people close to these things who say the intelligence agencies have their own relationship and they will carry on talking to each other no matter what the orders of, you know, as Justin Trudeau would put it, the federal government Mm -hmm. are. And they will carry on doing their own thing. And all kinds of alliances are beginning and maybe this is the hope, that you are beginning to see people coping with an international system that somehow doesn't have an American president in it. And, you know, while we're talking, the Christian Freeland, a uh, minister in the Canadian government, has been talking about um, having to, you know, Canada having to pursue a sovereign course without the security protections it's relied on with the United States. There was something in that with Merkel and Macron as well, beginning to get their heads around an international system even on something like climate change, that may just have to, between now and 2020, cope with uh, and manage each other without an American president. That is a a frightening prospect because American power since 1945 has underpinned a kind of international order. But you see and hear credible people in places like here in London beginning to talk that way about can we have a world order with, with, you know, where we absent, we remove from the equation the White House, because he's either not playing ball, or if he is, he's playing a very destructive role. Thank you very much for being here, Jonathan. Um, I wish we were meeting under more fortunate circumstances. I'm feeling like I need to say that like you would at a funeral. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Virginia. And that's it for our show today. But before we go, are you following us on Twitter? To keep up with the latest from us, be sure to follow our handle at RealTrumpCast. That's at RealTrumpCast. TrumpCast is produced by Jason DeLeon. And thanks, as always, to John D. Domenico, our voice of Donald Trump. I'm Virginia Heffernan. We'll be back soon with more TrumpCast. The press has messed everything up with the travel ban. Yes, it's a ban. It is a travel ban. We have the countries. How come it was okay when Obama did it? I do it. Everyone's upset. It's a ban. I want a ban. I know bans. Bans are tremendous. This ban will be the greatest ban in the history of bans. Just give me my ban. Stop arguing with me.